Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, music, faith, and community. to believe um, Advent is not far away, so that's exciting. We've been talking about unraveling and how so much of faith is letting go of what we thought might happen to embrace maybe something better. So today we're going to talk about Moses again. We heard about Moses a few weeks ago, but we're going to hear about him in a little different of a story. There's a lot of stories with Moses, uh, but this one's gonna be in Exodus. And we're gonna be in chapter one and chapter two, and um, I'll kind of guide us through the scripture. We're gonna start in Exodus chapter one, verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. And then we're gonna move to Exodus chapter two, verse one, because you see Moses was a Hebrew boy. And so he was very impacted by Pharaoh's order. Now a man of, starting in verse one of chapter two of Exodus, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So this story takes place on the Nile River which believe it or not is approximately 30 million years old. It's been around for a long time. And I'm wondering, have you ever floated on a river before? Does anyone have memories? Yes? Okay, cool. So maybe you all are more experienced than me because I haven't floated on a river many times. The most treacherous waters I've faced are the dangerous waters of the lazy river at Wild River Country Water Park in Arkansas, which went bankrupt after bad management. (laughs) 
But I do remember as a child the chaos of grabbing my tube and floating on that familiar path. And I remember wanting to grab the handles of another person's tube so that we could um, link together and be almost safer together on the path. Because floating together, you see, was safer than floating just alone. We could dodge the waterfalls together. Now, I'm aware that the Nile River does not in any way compare <laughs> with a lazy river. But as I've sat with this story of Moses floating down the river, I've been reminded how unpredictable a river is, how dangerous it can be, and how strange this story really is. That one of the ancestors of our faith, the great and famous Moses, the uh, protagonist of the Bible, has such a strange and scary story as a baby. Rivers are both new and very, very old. They take us to new places on the map, but they also hold memories of the past. And they've existed long before humans have. Like I said, 30 million years is a long time. But somehow, the same God who created the rivers and the streams, who separated the waters from the dry land, the same spirit that Genesis tells us hovered over the face of the waters when the earth was a formless void, is the same God who created humans, who created us, and created Moses. And Moses is part of a long story that continues to form the formless voids inside of us today, the story of God's salvation. If you visit Fair Park in Dallas, if you look closely, you'll see a monument of the Ten Commandments, the famous set of rules that Moses received from God and passed on to the Israelites. But what you won't see, even though I think they should take me up on my creative vision, they have a lot of water features and fountains, is a floating statue to honor the baby Moses, the vulnerable Moses, the floating child. But maybe that's not as nice and neat as a big Ten Commandments statue, right? Who wants to honor the part where Moses was trying to avoid being killed by a murderous, prejudiced regime? I digress. But before Moses encounters a burning bush or musters up the courage to say, let my people go to Pharaoh, before he even delivers those famous Ten Commandments that grace our country everywhere. Before all of that, he is a vulnerable little baby in a basket, okay? And this is not just any basket, this is a handmade papyrus basket. You know, think about like a project in third grade where you had to study the Egyptians and you probably wove together something in class. Where This is papyrus. So that doesn't even sound very durable to float in. But you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, you know? Pharaoh has ordered to throw Hebrew babies in the Nile if they are boys. This is genocide. 
This is evil. This evil decree comes from Pharaoh's fear that the Hebrew people will become too powerful and will threaten the rule of Pharaoh. So Moses' mother, Jochebed, an interesting name, decides to hide Moses for three months until she cannot hide him anymore. Maybe moms or dads of babies know that that three-month mark, you can't just hide them very easily. So she follows Pharaoh's orders, technically. She tosses him in the Nile. But she does so with God's saving grace. She makes a basket for him to float in. And as her dreams of safety for her child unravel, something new weaves together. She weaves a basket, but more so she weaves hope that maybe God will protect her child. And then she lets him go and float on this unpredictable path of the river. Desperate times call for desperate creative measures. And papyrus baskets don't even probably have handles that you could link onto, like a tube. She can't even go with him. She has to let her son go. It's a desperate, desperate time. It's hard to believe that the whole history of the Hebrew people, the same lineage that our Lord Jesus comes from, was as once as vulnerable as a floating baby in a basket. What would have happened if Moses hadn't been saved? We don't really know. We wouldn't have gotten the Ten Commandments. Things would be really different. So why would God risk this kind of vulnerability? But you see, God has always been this vulnerable. And God has always been close to those whose lives are at risk. And God has always been inspiring creative plans that unravel the oppressor's evil plots. Pharaoh could have never predicted that his own daughter would find Moses while she was bathing and would save Moses from the evil that Pharaoh plotted. Because, you know, he had power. Pharaoh was a pretty powerful guy. He had money and military and all the things that made him powerful for an oppressive ruler. But he can't control his own daughter when she decides to show compassion to the very people that he has taught her to hate. Can you imagine? And in this case, she refuses to inherit his prejudice. In this case, the apple does fall far from the tree. Pharaoh's daughter is someone, we don't know her name. Sometimes people get names in the Bible and sometimes they don't. And we could spend a long time focusing on that, but I will tell you women usually get less of a chance of getting their name said. Uh, but even Pharaoh is just referred to as Pharaoh, right? But it is, it's Pharaoh's daughter who names Moses, who, who takes mercy on Moses, who decides to value him. She rescues him from this river and raises him 
as her own eventually. So how does she get to the river in the first place? She's going there to bathe, but Jewish biblical commentary has noted that maybe her bathing has greater significance. We know that water can mean different things in the Bible. It doesn't just mean, you know, taking a, taking a bath. Um, maybe she's being baptized in a sense. She's being converted from the idolatry of the home she grew up in, which values uh, rule and power and wealth. She's learning about the grace of Yahweh, this God of Israel. And she sees the world differently after that experience. Her heart is open to compassion for the Hebrew people. Again, the very people she's been conditioned to hate. But that's what God is capable of. God is capable of transforming hearts so that we become allies, conspirators against injustice. Pharaoh's daughter uses her privilege to protect someone who is vulnerable, even when it costs her something. And this is what makes a true ally in God's grace. So this, this very old story, it's my hope that it can show us a few things. Number one, the plot of the oppressor can never outsmart God. And when I say the oppressor, it can be easy to think about pharaohs, right? People that are obviously using their power to hurt people. But there's a little bit of each in us. There's a little part of us that wants power more than we want God. And it's that part that can never outsmart God. God can take the most evil plans and redeem them because God is God, not Pharaoh, not president, not prime minister, not king, not pastor. God is God. And so when Pharaoh says, toss these Hebrew babies into the Nile, God can make that mean something different with baskets of protection, miraculous life rafts of healing. You see, God's salvation transforms the tools of oppression into the life raft of liberation. That's what God can do. Number two is that the world needs more allies, like Pharaoh's daughter. We hear a lot about allyship today, right? How do I become a good ally? A good ally for the LGBTQ, a good ally for anti-racism. We, we hear these words, right? And it's become more of a cool, trendy word and a hashtag. But, you know, God doesn't need us to do this kind of allyship in a performative way. Because for Pharaoh's daughter, there's no one really looking around and applauding her for saving Moses. And she isn't doing this out of fear of being canceled. It's her own inner conscience and discernment that leads her to save Moses. And it isn't about just looking good. I think we really need more examples of being washed in rivers of God's goodness rather than trying to just look good for our image or our ego.
God is good. Pharaoh's daughter's efforts don't gain her any recognition from her Egyptian peers. If anything, her reputation is at risk for taking the effort to save this vulnerable, marginalized child. But she is unraveling generations of discrimination by saving this one baby. The next thing we can remember is that this is, this is an old story, but it's still happening today. God is still floating down treacherous waters alongside vulnerable babies who need us to care about them. If you look anywhere in the world, you will see vulnerable children who need our compassion, who need us to care more about them than we do our prejudice, our desire for power, our apathy. And we could go through so many examples of, of vulnerable children, but there are some that are flooding our news feeds right now. Every day, babies are being killed by bombs in Gaza. And friends, we can't look away from this. Now, sure, we can't become obsessed with disturbing images to the point of despair. But we should always be disturbed when a child of God dies no matter who they are, that should unsettle something in us. It should connect us to our greater humanity. And we should speak up about it and say that it's wrong. Lest we think that we are separate, we can maybe imagine the children in our homes, in our families, Valerie uh, Coor is an activist and leader, and she says that the first step to peace and healing in the world is grieving that the deaths of other people's children. There are no such thing as other people's children. When we start to connect ourselves with other people's children, we see that we are all connected that we're all really children from one God and that we need to protect each other. So even if a place like Gaza or Ukraine or Sub-Saharan Africa feels far away, maybe that's overwhelming, start with looking for vulnerable children in your own community that need you to nurture them, to love them, to show the presence of Christ to them. The, the next thing to realize here is that we don't have to accept discrimination when it's handed to us. We can reject patterns of discrimination in our own families, in our own lineages. Just because our family passes something down to us doesn't mean we gotta hang on to it. Because there's a greater story that's been passed down for generations, and we need room in our hands to hang on to that. We gotta hang on to God's love. We gotta hang on to God's salvation, God's justice, God's mercy, 
that's going to take all of our hands. And so in doing so, we might have to let go of some old stories that maybe have been passed down. Stories that separate us from the other. We can reject these patterns. In this particular story, the Hebrew people were seen as a threat to be eliminated by Pharaoh. I want to be very clear that Jewish people today are still seen as threats. And we must work fervently against this discrimination. It is not of God. Anti-Semitism, like any form of discrimination, is insidious and sneaky, and it must be unraveled. So even when we mourn the war in Gaza and we might feel unsettled with the actions of the state of Israel, we must refuse to conflate that or give in to discrimination against Jewish people. It's disturbing to see this happen in our world and it's not okay. As the reality is as Christians, we live with a lot of cultural privilege because of our religion and we don't always know what it's like to be discriminated because of our religion. But that means that right now in the world today, it is more important than ever that we advocate for those who are discriminated against because we know that God desires something better. It's scary to risk learning something new and unlearning something old. But God needs us to show up with bravery, with courage, with compassion, especially when the world wants to discriminate against others based on their religion. Because as you can see from this story, we're all connected. We are connected to the story of Moses. We're connected to people who may be farther down the river, but they're still on the map with us. And that image of the river is so beautiful because if you think about it, Moses' mother let Moses go at one part of the river. Pharaoh's daughter picks him up at another part of the river. It all goes to show that we are mutually connected and dependent on each other. Sometimes we have to be the ones that let things go at a part of the river and trust God with it, whether that's a dream, a relationship, a life. Sometimes we're gonna be the ones that have to open our hands and let something go on the river. And sometimes we're going to be the ones that have to have the compassion and bravery to pick up something that we find and call it a treasure when the world has deemed it trash. Sometimes we're going to be the ones that won't let things slip through our fingers because we will see the human dignity of every child of God. 
The truth is that we're all human. Sin will continue to trick us into thinking that we're so different from each other. We're threats to each other. But this is sin. This is not God's will. If you think about it, this, this sinful mentality says there's Pharaoh and Hebrew, Jewish and Gentile, Egyptian princess and river orphan. But in Christ, we are one. In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek or Gentile. There is just a body of beautiful children who are loved by God. And really beautiful things happen when we decide to take off those labels and masks and just become humans with each other. And we help each other. We choose compassion. We choose the grace of Jesus. We remember that we all came from the same formless void and we don't want to go back to that formless void. We want to keep building something different. We want to keep being part of the creative goodness of God. And of course, God could just do all this by himself or herself. God could just decide to restore the world. But God is choosing to involve us. Just this week, uh, Davi, Marcel's son, we were having a, a youth night, and, and Bryson will remember this, and we were talking about the darkness in the world and how it can be really depressing. And I'm sure you all feel this. Sometimes with the news, you just get really down, and it starts to feel like maybe darkness is ruling things. Do you ever feel like that? Well, we were saying, you know, how do we deal that with, with that in Advent? And Davi said something that I thought was so wise. He said, we find hope when we face the darkness and bring the light. When we change the hard things in the world, that brings us hope. And I thought, yeah, that's it. We feel hope when we do something about injustice and sin and evil even when it costs us something. A River Runs Through It is a 1976 memoir slash novella by Norman McLean. And A River Runs Through It describes life in rural Montana. And it features the McLean brothers and their father who was a Presbyterian minister. It was turned into a movie starring Brad Pitt that you might have seen. But this is what Norman McLean says about his family and life spent on the river. He says, in our, fam in our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. We lived at the junction of great trout rivers in western Montana, and our father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. He told us about Christ's disciples being fishermen, and we were left to assume, as my brother and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen, <laughs> and that John, the favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. 
He goes on to say, my father was very sure about certain matters pertaining to the universe. To him, all good things, trout as well as eternal salvation, came by grace. And grace comes by art, and art does not come easy. And then he says this, he says, eventually all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters, he says. And then he says, you can love completely without complete understanding. Did you hear that? You can love completely without complete understanding. You can love someone different than you completely without complete understanding. You can love yourself deeply without complete understanding. And my friends, you can love God completely without complete understanding. In a few weeks, we will begin to anticipate the birth of another vulnerable child. And you know this one. His name is Jesus, our Prince of Peace, our Lord of Lords, our Shepherd. And he didn't come as a mighty ruler. He didn't come to compete with Pharaoh. He didn't come as a Goliath or a giant or a king in the traditional sense. He came as a baby floating down the river of humanity hoping that we would catch him. You see, Jesus was scooped up by another brave and godly woman. And Jesus came because God wanted to be close to us and God wanted to save us. God knew that evil and sin and injustice wasn't going to get to end the story. God had a different ending to the story. And God said, I love you for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life, friends. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And this baby, this baby named Jesus, instead of being saved, he would come to save us. Oh, Lord, how we need it. 